All right, we are live, folks. Uh, Sue John Kapadia here. And Becca Rufford. Nice to see everyone again. Uh, unfortunately, Ken couldn't make it today, but he's here in spirit with us. Mm -hmm. So, wow, we're one week away from ETE. It's insane. I, I can't believe it's here. I know. You've been really busy with it, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're really excited for this year. Just working with this, a lot of the speakers last minute. Um, also, we do have a special discount code for our listeners. Um, so right now, tickets to ETE are $225. That's for two days of fully developer-centric content. This is for direct access and Q&A to some of these incredible speakers. Um, it's access to our Slack where all of the discussion and the conference serendipitous interactions happen. Um, but yeah, $225. If you use code TechChat, T-E-C-H-C-H-A-T, you get $25 off. So definitely take advantage of that. And tickets are open until Monday the 18th at midnight. Awesome. And um, for folks that are just tuning in now or don't know about ET, it's a conference we run every single year um, in the Philly area. It's a conference organized by developers for developers. So it's very technical. We get awesome lineup of speakers that are like contributing to a lot of open source projects. Some of them are the actual founders of their companies or projects that they're working on. And it's a wide range of topics. And the keynotes this year, um, one we're going to interview later today, um, Elizabeth Adams, who's a global chief AI culture and ethics um, officer, and Corey Doctorow, who's a science fiction author. Um, I think both are going to be awesome keynotes to start off the conference. They're going to give us a lot of deep stuff to think about. So I'm totally stoked about that. And um, again, as Becca mentioned, the tech chat discount code, $25 off. Registration still open. This is virtual. So um, if folks are listening outside of the U.S. or, or far away, from, you know, Anyone can join this event. It doesn't matter where you are. And that's awesome. Um, There's going to be a lot of great content. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, to get started, um, to look at existing content that we've had from previous ET, our podcast, um, our blogs, our videos, a great place to start is our YouTube channel for Chariot. Um, a lot of great content out there from prior ET uh, conferences in case you want to kind of get an idea of uh, the level of quality, the level of speakers that uh, speak at ET. There's so much stuff there. Um, so definitely check out the Chariot Solutions YouTube channel, hit subscribe, um, a lot of great stuff uh, there and some interesting discussions actually in the comments on, on some of the more popular talks. Um, so definitely worth checking that out. I also um, want to point out that um, all of the ETE 2022 videos will be released to the public later in the summer. But part of the benefit of actually getting a ticket to ETE is you get first access to all of that within the first week after the conference. Yeah. Um, so definitely want to want to go for that. Yeah. Yeah. You get the first week uh, you get access. Um, if you're attending live, you, the Slack conversations that are happening before, during and after the talks have a lot of great content and questions and just people um, interacting with each other. I found that part of the conference a lot of fun. Um, it's only available to those who register and attend live. And uh, what you do get is the ability to ask questions directly to the speaker right after the talk, which um, I remember I think last year I moderated a talk for Kent Beck, um, big guy in the extreme programming agile community. And then afterwards, he answered a lot of questions. The same with Alan Kay. And it was awesome. I mean, some of the questions that were asked and answered, there were almost like a separate talk amongst themselves. So um, that you really, you can't get access to any of that unless you attend live. So it's definitely worth 
uh, checking it out for that reason alone. Yeah, that's right. Alan Kay hung out for like an hour after his yeah. talk and he was actually chatting with Richard Feldman, who's the founder of the Rock Programming Languages or Rock Programming Language. And they were talking about typed versus untyped, like just going back and forth. About it. it was just fascinating to watch. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. And they're so humble. I, I was, Alan Kay, like he was just the most humble person I've, I think I've ever met. And he has no reason to be humble at all. <laughs> um, awesome. So in addition to all the content on YouTube, um, we have a pretty active blog with a lot of uh, content around front end, React, um, AWS, data engineering, Spring, JavaScript. So um, some of our recent posts, actually, most recent by Joey Pistoni, is a really great first blog post in a series of blog posts that are coming around developing microservices in Go. Um, and doing things like deploying them to the cloud, continuous integration, et cetera. So this first blog post is on why you should be writing your microservices in Go. So Joey goes into why he thinks Go is a great language for that. Um, he goes into several frameworks and he goes into how to build a, a simple microservice using that framework and some of the benefits of that. And there's a code repo there to share as well. So definitely check that out. Um, uh, another person also a recent hire, Chariot Steve Wood, uh, wrote a blog post about Spring Cloud Sleuth. So for folks that are uh, familiar with like distributed tracing, things like Jaeger, Zipkin, um, OpenTelemetry, uh, Spring Cloud Sleuth is a drop-in jar for Spring, Java, Spring Boot, Java, Kotlin projects that gives you uh, distributed tracing out of the box and integrates with some of the other tools like Zipkin, um, Jaeger and stuff is compatible with that. So uh, if, you're, if you're looking into solutions for Java-based microservices around uh, monitoring your applications, at the application level and uh, being able to kind of see what happens with the request coming in all the way through to the database and back, definitely check out uh, Spring Cloud Sleuth. And then there's a ton of other content here. Um, and we're always adding more. So this is definitely something I would bookmark the Cherry Solutions YouTube channel and bookmark this and, um, and keep an eye on it. A lot of, a lot of great content. Okay. So um, I guess we can uh, get into the news then. So actually, before I get into the news, uh, don't want to forget mentioning uh, one of our own, uh, Keith Gregory, uh, Cherry AWS practice lead, is going to be speaking virtually uh, tonight at the Philly area Java users group. Um, I think there's like 70 attendees at this point. A number of Chariot folks are going to and folks I've worked with in the past outside of Chariot. But uh, he's going to be speaking about uh, the Log4Shell vulnerability and basically things to look out for, things you can do when you're uh, architecting your solution on the cloud um, around networking and security groups and VPCs and um, how things communicate internally and externally and how to uh, minimize the chances of something like a log4shell vulnerability uh, exposing your application or your infrastructure to, to hackers outside. So definitely worth uh, checking out very relevant topic you hear about new and new security vulnerabilities every week I'm actually going to be talking about one in the news in a, mo in a minute uh so uh we will provide a link in the chat window if you can do that becca um for the philly jug registration and fake folks are interested it's actually today april 12th uh tuesday at 6 30 p.m eastern standard time uh so definitely check that out and fully virtual so if you're listening to this from wherever you can hop in keith is an excellent speaker yeah i'm looking really forward to that uh, sweet okay so the first uh item of news we're going to talk about actually is an aws uh critical security vulnerability really interesting one 
This is from a security company, Lightspin, and this is their engineering blog. So um, this person, Guffney Amiga, uh, I hope I got that name right. And if I butchered it, I, my apologies, uh, is an AWS RDS vulnerability. So RDS is of one of uh, Amazon's uh, relational database uh, managed services. It provides like SQL Server, Postgres, MySQL, MariaDB, et cetera, um, as database engines that you can uh, use uh, for relational database uh, workloads. So um, anyway, this vulnerability is really interesting. It is um, on Postgres. And the idea is you have a Postgres database on RDS running properly configured and, and protected from external access and things like that. Um, Postgres provides extensions um, to enhance its functionality. One of them is called a foreign data wrapper, which allows you to write SQL queries that query against Postgres, but all, also can query against a custom external data source, but you can do it through Postgres and still write SQL. So it gives you access to other data sources. Um, it turns out that that extension itself, um, I won't get into all the details, allows you to access files on the file system of that EC2 instance, for example, which RDS runs on. So. This vulnerability allows a user who can get it, who can log into the database and run queries to add this extension. So you you do need to be able to get into the database and have access to it to begin with. So that's one level of protection. Um, but if you can get into that, uh, what it does is allows you to read files off of the file system. Uh, for example, uh, let me see the name here: uh, password files, uh, log files. Um, there's a PostgreSQL configuration files, and then there's others, Grover configuration file that has access to internal AWS services, which are not published to the public. And this file had access credentials to get into that service. So it was a potentially big vulnerability of getting inside AWS's infrastructure and having access to credentials you shouldn't via this extension that just happened to be able to read files on the system and had permissions to do so. So if you're interested in kind of seeing some of the nuts and bolts of how that works and how the pieces all fit together. I highly recommend checking out this blog post from uh, Lightspin. Um, it's pretty eye-opening um, and they give a good explanation of what exactly they did to cause that to occur. Um, and this patch, is, by the way, this patch is already out. It's already been fixed. AWS responded within a few days after Lightspin um, or who actually did it. Yeah, it was Lightspin's research team actually uh, provided this. Uh, so it's been patched. Uh, but I'm sure we'll hear more things like this in the future. Uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about is <clears throat> uh, something completely different is uh, microservices. So we actually at Chariot work with a lot of clients that have monolithic architectures, basically meaning you have one code base that's deployed as one um, product, one running large service. Um, and over time, as that grows and more and more developers are working on the monolith, it can become a lot harder to add changes, uh, understand the code, test things, being able to scale things independently because they're all they're all one um, uh, unit. So a lot of companies are looking to break those things out into microservices where you can have separate teams working on separate microservices, independently deploying things with the, the goal of less breaking changes uh, less, uh, more, more agility, le less, uh, fragility. So it's easier to make a change in one area without impacting a lot of other things, or it's easier to release a change in one area without 
uh, having to change everything at once or wait for all the other things to catch up and then deploy it at once. So anyway, um, what this blog post goes into an activity that um, we've used as well called event storming around getting all the stakeholders and technical people into a room and basically writing out all the events and putting them on post-it notes on a, on a wall or a whiteboard, um, business domain events, commands, events, results, uh, getting all that out uh, and then putting it on one timeline from beginning to end as a, as a request flow, looking at all those events, looking at the timeline, looking at which ones are related and can be kind of uh, put together in what they call bounded context, meanings like areas of common responsibility that don't need to, um, that are separate from other areas. Uh, and then taking all of that and then determining, hey, what microservices can we build from these? So the idea is just starting very organically with your business stakeholders in an event that can run a half day, a day, two days, uh, and then discovering the business events and then turning that into a set of microservices. Um, I've been on some teams where that has been successfully done. It's a neat activity um, and it allows everyone to get together in one room and understand the business in more depth. So this blog post gets into a definition of what that is, how to, how it works um, in practice, and it defines a lot of terminology around it. It's one of the better articles I've seen that breaks down what event storming um, exactly is, and it's on Medium. It's uh, published in Capital One Tech, so um, I'm assuming that the people that wrote this are from Capital One. So shout out to Capital One and um, Andrew Bonman for uh, working on this uh, blog post. All right, um, back into AWS land now. Uh, AWS Firecracker is essentially a very lean, fast virtual machine that starts up within seconds or less, um, used for AWS Lambdas, which is AWS a serverless solution. Um, I think Firecracker was released probably a couple years ago at this point. Um, this article goes into what Firecracker is, um, what it is under the hood, why why it makes things really fast. It gets rid of a lot of things that a, a VM doesn't need around supporting different peripherals um, that a, a Lambda-based VM would not need. Um, it also uh, gets rid of things like BIOS and things that instead of uh, having to uh, use, a, use a physical hardware and the OS running on the physical hardware to do things like writing to disk or making certain checks, doing a, you know, uh, a post check on boot up, uh, instead of using BIOS to do that, each time you leave the VM, it's a context switch and it's time consuming um, and it slows things down. It does things natively um, in kernel code without resorting to BIOS, speeding up startup a lot. Uh, anyway, getting into this would be a much more in-depth talk. Uh, so I highly recommend looking at this to just get an idea of uh, what folks like Google and Amazon are doing on this space to be able to be able to write single functions that have a full environment and a container around them, but that can start up extremely fast and kind of the tricks and tweaks they're making. And they're like really basically pushing forward the design and architecture of operating systems, of data centers, of hardware. Um, so from that angle, I think this kind of stuff uh, is really interesting. So uh, check out this blog post from unixism.net. Uh, I don't know if there's a single author to the blog post I can credit. Oh, I can. Uh, Shweb Hussein. Um, you can follow follow them on Twitter. Um, it's at the bottom of the post, uh, the About Me. So uh, definitely check that out as well. And I think I have one more um, news item, which is actually from last month, um, but it was news to me. So 
for the folks that don't know Flutter, it is a cross-platform uh, mobile solution by Google to be able to write one code base um, in a language called Dart that Google supports. It's a lot like JavaScript and Java. Uh, and to be able to then build a mobile app that can run on iOS and it can run on Android. One thing it does differently from other uh, cross-platform solutions, it has its own native runtime rendering engine that runs as, as a module on the phone. So the Flutter code you write is natively run by an engine that itself is written in native uh, Swift, Objective-C, or native Kotlin, Java for the Android, respectively. Um, so um, it's really fast. Um, tends to be smoother than other cross-platform solutions in terms of graphics and animation. Um, those are the pros. Uh, some of the downsides are that Flutter uh, basically renders everything itself. So it creates components and widgets that look like Android components, widgets that looks like iOS components and widgets. So it has to keep up with that every time there's a change on Apple or Android. It has to implement that in Flutter. So it makes things a lot faster and it gives Flutter a lot more control over how things are rendered and developed but it has to constantly keep up with each individual platform. Um, so you're not getting the latest and greatest if, as you would as if you were just doing native development. Anyway, after saying all that, um, last month they're announcing Flutter support for Windows. So you can write Windows apps that run on mobile and on mobile web um, on the Windows platform. So this is from Tim Sneath um, on Medium, published in the Flutter area. Uh, so I believe Tim Sneath is on, most likely on the Flutter team. I haven't uh, looked into that. Sure, it's a detailed blog post that goes into a lot of what went into this. Um, so, highly recommend checking that out as well. Uh, I've hacked around with Flutter a little bit. I was really impressed for some of the toy stuff I did. I think it probably suffers from some of the same things that other cross-platform things like React Native and um, PhoneGap, Ionic, Cordova do as well. As you start building larger apps and and um, have more people involved, uh, but there are a lot of Google apps that are written Flutter Lao. A lot of companies are using it. So um, I think it's going to be here for quite some time. It's gaining a lot of traction. Um, so I think we're going to continue hearing about it for the next few years at least. So if you're interested in checking out that, um, uh, go to Google's website, Flutter website. There's a lot of resources on there. Um, there's courses online. There's some great ones on Udemy. Um, so definitely recommend checking it out, kind of see what's happening out in that space. Um, that's yeah. great. And all these links are going to be in the show notes. Um, we tried to drop them in the comments as well. So you can check out all these articles. Yeah. So that's it for the news um, today. I think uh, the next thing I wanted to go uh, quickly into is just uh, so Chariot Solutions, uh, we're hiring um, pretty aggressively. So we have a number of job openings that if you go to our website um, at chariotsolutions.com slash careers, um, you can kind of see who we are. You can see our, our benefits, um, our open positions. We're hiring for Java, Python, Node, AWS senior software engineers. We're hiring iOS, Swift engineers, um, Android, Kotlin engineers, data engineers, uh, React, and Angular. So um, a lot of open positions. Uh, uh, we're a tech-minded company. We're engineers, companies. Um, driven by engineers, led by engineers. We're all really passionate about tech. Um, we're looking for folks that are smart and can solve problems and like peeking under the hood and learning and uh, tinkering around with things and just learning and understanding and have a passion for like how things work the way they work. 
so if you want to check us out, uh, definitely men come in here, checking out our YouTube channel, um, looking at our case studies and our blog, and you can always reach out to me, Ken, or anyone. Um, if you want to find out more about these jobs or about Chariot, uh, we go into our interview process as well. So uh, definitely check out if you're interested or if you know folks that are interested uh, and are looking for a new job. Mm -hmm. uh, got a lot of stuff going on right now. Looking for a, a pretty exciting year ahead. Uh, going to remind again, ET, uh, we still have a $25 uh, offer code for a discount for the, the original $225 price. Um, if you type in tech chat, T-E-C-H-C-H-A-T, Definitely hoping to see you at ETE. Um, and just want to thank you uh, again for uh, being loyal listeners and hopefully had some new listeners as well. <clears throat> Ken will be back next time. And actually, since ET is going on next week, um, is Tech Chat happening? So no Tech Chat next week, but we actually had a couple of speakers who were willing to talk about their ETE talk. Um, so we're actually scheduling them this week and also the week after ETE. So when we return after ETE and we're back on our bi-weekly, we'll have a couple of interviews queued up awesome. with um, Stuart Smith, who uh, is the Q.js maintainer and creator. Mm -hmm. He does some really cool work, a lot of it at the intersection of art and music. And um, we're really excited for our conversation with him. So we'll probably be playing back a couple of those interviews for the next couple tech chats. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Um, so that's, that's it for me. Uh, thanks for listening to me, Becca. Thanks for listening to me. Uh, uh, listener. So uh, we'll be back soon. Yeah. And I've got an interview with Elizabeth Adams that I'll queue up and I'll see you later. See you, John. Awesome. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye. Okay. So um, we actually do have an exclusive interview today with um, our opening keynote. Um, her name is Elizabeth Adams. Um, she's going to be speaking at Philly ETE 2022 this year. Her keynote is titled Leadership of Responsible AI, The Case for Inclusive Tech. So um, Elizabeth Adams does a lot of work with um, ethics and AI. So in her ETE talk, um, she's going to take a look at a couple case studies where AI is posing some problems for um, communities and more vulnerable populations. Um, and she kind of discusses how everyone involved in this AI lifecycle can ensure that these AI-enabled solutions are fair and stay equitable for everyone. So um, this interview is a recording between our host, Ken Rimple, um, and also our CMO at Chariot, Tracy Wilson-Rossman. Um, Tracy Wilson-Rossman is also the founder of Tech Girls, which is a nonprofit that gets um, you know, younger girls, a younger community into technology at an early age through free hands-on workshops. So she was really excited to talk to Elizabeth Adams as well, since their work kind of intertwines. And um, it was a great interview. So without further ado, I'm going to pull that up for you. Elizabeth Adams, thank you so much for joining us on the Chariot Tech Chat Tuesdays that we have. Um, really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be speaking with you all today. So we have uh, your, you're our first keynote for ETE uh, on Tuesday, uh, the 19th. Uh, we're really looking forward to it. Uh, according to our bio information here, and you can certainly change this to on us and tell us more, um, you're a Forbes 15 AI ethics leaders showing the world the way of the future. Um, highly sought after resource for executives, small business owners, nonprofits, educational institutions, and community leaders who are looking to expand the knowledge of AI ethics and leadership of responsible AI. So based on that, we know you're going to talk about AI. We know that you're looking at ethics in AI. 
Um, why don't we just get a little bit of background, uh, tell everyone who you are in general from your perspective. Sure. So as you mentioned, I am Elizabeth Adams. I live and work out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been here oh, the last several years, and but before that, spent most of my time in the D.C. area where I have grown to love technology in most of my um, career, led lots of um, technology initiatives for Fortune 500 companies or the government, various um, intelligence agencies. And when I moved back to Minnesota, um, for family reasons, and I also became aware of this thing called AI bias. And as I began to research and learn a little bit more about it, I realized that there were some serious concerns for marginalized communities, um, vulnerable populations, and quite frankly, uh, people who look like me. And so I wanted to investigate that a little further. And so I started my journey into AI ethics and um, created a book, like a short ebook in June of 2018 to just kind of um, crystallize my message about what it was that I was thinking about this new topic. And from there, I just started conducting learning events. And one thing has led to another, it's led to another. And so here we are now talking about AI ethics. All right. So Tracy, do you want to ask the first question then? Sure. So um, in one of those uh, karma uh, events that happened, uh, Wall Street Journal today actually had a whole section on AI um, in healthcare. And um, it just happens that in one of the conversations that you've had previously, you were asked about the prevalence of AI in medical applications. But what are some of the areas where AI is being applied that people would be surprised to learn about? Oh, you know, that's a good question. I haven't really spent much time. So when you say people would be surprised about, I actually think um, AI is being used in many different ways. And we could just talk about ways that it's being used to model, um, uh, model in a way so it can predict cancer, right? So that there mm -hmm. are then ways that doctors can use that information to um, help with preventive medicines. There's AI is also being used to help figure out a treatment plan for someone who maybe doesn't have cancer, but maybe they have some other kind of um, disease or virus. And so their AI is helping there. I also read an article a few years ago that AI was helping to decide how long someone should remain in the hospital based on their condition, right? So they're running these right. models and then deciding that a person's hospital stay could be limited because of these predictions. Um, so I've seen AI used a number of different ways in the healthcare system to determine who should get vaccines, uh, where they should get them, at least that happened here in Minnesota. So lots of, lots of different, lots of different ways. So it's much more prevalent than we even realized. Oh, it's very, very integrated in our lives. Um, it's actually like, if you could just Think of everything that you do is somehow being affected by, by AI, whether it's traffic patterns or how you're getting into a building or how you are paying for something. I mean, everything that we're doing, home assistance, um, assistance, excuse me, to lots of different ways. AI has, has made its way into our lives. Well, I also would assume that you know, it's obvious, I guess, it depends on what the developer of the AI has decided it wants to optimize for too, right? So in healthcare, one of the big predominant things is like optimizing the cost to 
the provider, whether it's the hospital or like, you know, the insurance company. So I suppose the way it optimizes could, depending on the person's insurance level, whether they have insurance or not, could affect the outcome of their health because it might be optimizing for costs, for example, right? So you're talking about the healthcare organization specifically? Well, it, yeah, if you're if the healthcare organization is looking at, you know, uh, patient stay, for example, and, and coming up with a duration and finds out that this, this particular person has Cadillac health insurance mm -hmm. or this person isn't insured, you know, uh, we were talking about like outcomes and bias and things like that. You could look at like communities that are underserved by health insurance and AI making decisions for people, um, you know, and causing them to have a shorter hospital stay, for example. Yeah, so that brings me to a lot of different discriminatory outcomes I think could play mm -hmm. in health because as you know, I'm sure data in that is good. There will be data that comes out that is good. And if it's not right. good coming in, then it won't be good coming out. And so when we think about some of these models, what's important for me to understand, because I can talk a lot about what some of these systems are doing, but if I don't really understand the data that they're using, and if it's diverse, if it's inclusive, does it include various ages and um, I don't know, other health concerns, then what you could be saying to someone like me is, yep, your stake should be shorter, it should be longer, but you're not basing it on a wide variety of the population that might have those particular um, you know, health challenges or health concerns. And right. so for me, it's always interesting to understand how the data is modeled, where the data come from, who is annotating the data, because those are very, very uh, serious questions. And then, so as you know, like we were a tech conference, right? So we have a lot of software developers and they take designs and you know user interactions and, and turn them into uh, software. And you've got like data scientists and other people working with that data. Um, do you think that we have more of a need here for colleges and boot camps to add courses on designing for inclusivity? I do, but I also think the larger issue is around ethics, which also includes inclusivity, like mm -hmm. understanding, should your technology even be developed? Do you even need AI? Like, what is mm -hmm. your business problem? And do you need AI to solve that business problem? And then with ethics, for me, there's um, different ways to think about that. But one is, who, should, who are the stakeholders that should be involved? So ethics, to me, covers the entire technology development lifecycle versus just having diverse teams at the data scientists or a data analytics level. Does that make sense? So business ethics, yeah. I think, is the bigger that I think should be taught, which I'm seeing a lot more of um, in, in some more of the um, computer science courses. Yeah, because it, it, if the inputs, as you're saying, the inputs to the design process don't include inclusive, uh, you know, uh, practices and, 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 and making sure that you've, you've got that covered, then whatever you write, you don't have that informed need in there. No, it doesn't make any sense at all, but yeah. That, no, you're right. And what ethics does is it puts guardrails around yeah. your development, your frameworks, your governance, right. your policies, your procedures, your processes. It right. puts all of that into perspective. And so that way that information and those guardrails are cascaded out across the organization versus just making the responsibility of, of uh, AI ethics or non-biased AI just on the data scientists mm -hmm. or right. the data science team, data science team. Yeah, that makes sense.
you need other people who can at least raise their hands and say, this isn't right for, for, for a larger breadth of experiences, which I think actually leads into our next question. Um, you did an interview last year with the Harvard Business School's digital initiative, and you stated maybe they don't have enough lived experience with people of diverse backgrounds. Technology needs to work for every single human. And you were talking more around civic leaders, but if we step back and look at the lack of diversity in our own software developer community, I believe the statement can be applied to this segment as well. So do you have any advice for what steps engineering organizations in companies can take to have a greater understanding of other people's experiences? Yeah, that's a great question. And I talk about that often. So I'll say two things. One, I think it's very important to host learning events inside your organization so that you are learning from people who might have a different perspective. Finding out from people who are in civil society, people who are in academia, people who are doing research, like host these learning events and bring in these different perspectives. The other thing that I talk to companies about who are saying that there aren't enough people in the pipeline is that there are opportunities to partner with community organizations where maybe you might not find a data scientist, but you might find someone who is an expert in um, um, designing with different physical abilities in uh, taking that into consideration. Um, or other community organizations who are doing different things from the educational space to the housing space or, or whatever. And so I often say, if you're going to create these corporate social initiatives or social responsibility initiatives, why not make that one? And why not bring in these um, diverse perspectives? And even creating a social, uh, excuse me, a corporate social responsibility role so that you can pay these folks for their expertise and their talent, just like you would pay the pay a data scientist, same rate and all of that. Right. You could actually just build that into the cost of the project too. I feel that way, but you know, that's well, just I me think advising. We're, we're putting it out there. So it's not even just for large organizations. There's way there's ways for smaller organizations that they can look outside themselves and also build it into, you know, the cost of, of what they're doing. Right. It's going you, to save them money in the long run. It will. And I talk about this a lot, which is what happens when our social worlds and our technology worlds collide, when you're forgetting all of those pieces throughout that technology development life cycle that you could have had in the design and development sessions and all the right. way through execution. Um, but you've chosen not to, or maybe you don't know. But once you know, right. there are certainly opportunities um, to bring those voices and uh, that expertise in-house. You know, it's it's almost like I almost feel like it's a V8 moment where you're just like, duh. I mean, why didn't we think about going outside of our organizations to those who have that expertise? Um, that, that is just great food for thought. So thank you. Welcome. Yeah. So that kind of leads into the next question. Um, so, like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking specifically for the web. For example, there have been standards that have come up, like the ARIA standards, right? The assistive devices and things like that, um, where you can follow those standards and you can run different, you know, checks um, to say, okay, so for example, my forms don't have a 
you know, prompt for each field or my button isn't accessible and things like that. I know a lot of this stuff isn't as mechanical to figure out, but are there standards and guidelines that are being developed around AI uh, and, and, you know, making sure that we apply the right um, checks to make sure we're not building things that are too uh, exclusive to certain ethnic groups or what have you? Yeah, that's a great question. And there are. And part of my advice is for corporations who may not have an AI emphasis on staff, just to do an internet search. There are so many guidelines out there that if people just start with one, they can evolve from there. So United Nations has something, the World Economic Forum has something. Here in the US, the National Institute of Standards and Technology has something. Accenture has something. UC Berkeley has something. I mean, there was some uh, research that I've done recently, I uh, came across a paper where someone did like this analysis of 35 different publications on principled AI and they came away with like these eight principles that make up the normative core of what most of these other guidelines uh, have. And so start somewhere. One of the things that, that I advise is just create AI ethics principles. Uh, you can either bring someone in or start with a team in-house and then evolve from there. AI ethics, responsible AI, principled AI, all of this is a practice. No one's ever gonna get good overnight. And so you have to um, mm -hmm. start somewhere, use check um, toolkits, um, checklists. There are a number of things that people can do to just get started. That's great. Um, we can probably put those in the show notes too, right? Ken, yeah. we can put those in yeah. the show notes? Yeah, we can Excellent. look at some of those things definitely, yeah. So um, just to, to wrap up, I mean, we are here to, you know, talk a little bit about uh, the emerging technologies for the enterprise conference, which is happening April 19th and 20th, and you will be kicking off with our, our keynote. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you will be talking about? Yeah, one of the things that I think is an important message, and we've talked about it before, but I call it leadership of responsible AI. So that is the research I'm pursuing um, for my doctorate at Pepperdine. And that really is how do leaders kind of step into the space and manage this new kind of environment where you have coworkers who might be bots? And how do you do that with an inclusive lens? So it's a case for inclusive tech. And I'll be also sharing a case study um, from a research project and the civic tech project that I did with the city of Minneapolis showing the importance of really, really understanding how bias occurs and what are the social implications of that bias when it goes unchecked. And so I'll also end up with, you know, how we can prepare for leadership responsible AI. What are some of the right. things that we can do inside and outside of our organizations and personally? So I'm looking forward to um, kind of sharing those things as well as a little bit around human dignity and, and human values um, in, in, in our designs and development of AI. Well, we so appreciate you coming on with us. And I know our audience is going to enjoy your talk and uh, they're, they're very thoughtful with these discussions. So um, I think you should look forward to some really good questions as well. Good, I'm yeah, excited. Yeah, looking forward to hearing you speak, yes. Yeah. Thank you. All right, thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation to be here today. All right, take care, Elizabeth.
So thank you so much to Elizabeth Adams for taking the time, not only for that conversation, but for the continued work that she does in such an important field right now. Um, we're all really looking forward to her kicking off our ETE 2022 conference. Again, that can be found at 2022.phillyemergingtech.com. It's in the comments here. We'll drop it in the show notes after. Also with a special discount code, TechChat for $25 off the show. Um, that's April 19th and 20th. And Elizabeth will be kicking off the show bright and early Tuesday, April 19th. So we're all really looking forward to it. Um, thanks again for joining us today. And um, we will see you in the next two weeks or so. But hopefully we'll see you at ETE first. All right. Bye now.